friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. This morning we're in 2 Timothy. Uh, again, still, uh, if you've got your Bible open, open to chapter 1, verse 8, we're going to start there. I'm just going to start by reading uh, 8 through 12, and then I'm going to jump around a little bit. Um, uh, you don't have to follow me on the next section, but this first section. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, remember this is his last words. This is Paul encouraging Timothy how to live faithfully in these last days. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this light, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I I have entrusted to him for that day. Um, you can go ahead and get, take the. I don't have any slides this week, so you can take that slide down. No worries. All right, then we go to uh, 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Let's remember, Paul writes this letter from a Roman prison cell with chains on him. He's got he's literally writing with chains on his wrists. Then Second Timothy three, ten through fourteen. You know, however, all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Then 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles that they might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Paul's invitation to Timothy is to join him in suffering and allow suffering to produce in him the kind of godliness that can actually crack open a world who's resistant and hostile to the gospel. Paul's like, it's our suffering 
and how we suffer and what it produces in us that sets us apart. Now, um, just a little insight into um, something about Skyline. So a lot of you, uh, many of you are new here. Um, we've been going for 15 years um, in this little church, and God's been at work here. And, and one of the things that makes us unique is, and you've probably felt it, and you've probably felt um, both the, uh, the, the beauty of it and maybe the uncomfortableness of it, in that we have chosen to, to live and be the kind of church who's not highly produced, have you noticed that? You haven't noticed like fog machines or lights. Like we're, we're not trying to be highly professional. Um, so we make mistakes and things get awkward, but they also are funny, which is always fun to like laugh at yourself in church when you realize uh, you've done something silly or goofy or you forgot what you're supposed to do and, and all these things. Like there, there's this, this, um, this thing that we've tried for, which is simplicity, uh, and who we are and how we are with each other. And one of the reasons we, we've done that, and, and um, we listened to a podcast this uh, last couple of weeks, our staff, and on this podcast, they were talking about the difference between the days of Saul and the days of David. The days of Saul was when human beings picked a leader. What did they pick? They picked the tall, handsome, strong guy who they thought the world would look at our leader, our king, and say, well, we better leave them alone. And God says, but that's not the leader I'm looking for. He says, the leader I'm looking for that I already know and I've already chosen, I know his name is this boy who's a shepherd out in the wilderness who's a worshiper who loves me. And this boy, even though he's not tall and handsome and strong, he's actually willing to stand up to giants. He actually lives from this place in his heart that he loves me so much, he's willing to go after me. And so you kind of see this idea that there's the way of Saul, which is like technique and technology and strategy and human strength. And then there's the way of David, who's about surrender and submission to God, about worship and love, about passion. And, and I'll just say, uh, I think we have seen where the church goes when it's led by human strategy and human skill and human talent and ingenuity. And, um, and although there's parts of us that love those things, we also can be now 20 or 30 years into it and say, where has that gotten us as the American church? That's why I asked a few weeks ago, how many of you listened to a podcast within the last week? And it was 90% of you had listened to a, a sermon podcast and probably you listened to multiple. And my argument is in, in a generation who is drowning in content, in information, in technique, we've never had better buildings, better preachers, better leadership, better, uh, more money. The church has never been more wealthy than the American church. And yet I think we'd all agree our influence is in decline. Actually, attendance is in decline. Um, people going into full-time ministries in decline. Do you realize there is a crisis in the church of, of a lack of pastors? Because people are no longer doing what I did at 21, going to an altar and giving their whole life to God and say, I'll give my whole life to ministry. It's not happening anymore. Praise God. You know what we've heard in our kids' ministry lately in the last few months? People say, I think I'm called to be a preacher. They're five and seven and nine, 11 years. Like God's, God's like reviving, I think, in the hearts of children. Maybe I'll be one of those people I read about in the Bible who gives their whole life to God through full-time ministry. And not that that's better than being a businessman or a psychologist or a teacher, but that God does call and set people apart for that kind of thing, and we bless it. We think it's good. And so what I don't want you to think is that, you know, Skyline's kind of like, you know, we're, we're uh, 
like this is a choice to be this way. It's like a, it's a, it's a choice to be in some ways less than. So I, I don't know if you guys know this about like Todd Lovelace and Greg Dewey, but you guys, you probably don't know. Some of you know them for a while. They're like rock stars in that system. The system I talked about, like the system of Saul, like the two largest churches in America both tried to hire Greg and Todd to be their youth pastors or Greg actually was their college. Like, I mean, it's like in that world, Greg and Todd were like, known as guys, if you want guys to run your ministry and bring in the kids and preach and organize and do all this stuff, they're two of the best in the country. And when they started this church, they said, you know what? We don't want to do it that way. We know how to do that. We know how to grow a large church. We know how to build a stage and how to preach and how to get, how to do all this stuff. Uh, they, they trained me in ministry. I went out, for, I just want you to know, like when I preach, I don't preach so that I give you the best content possible. And I'm sorry if that sounds weird, but, um, like, but, but I know how to do that. It's not because I don't know how to do that. When I was 22, my first sermon was to 2,000 people on a Sunday morning at 22. And by 25, I was preaching in this 2,000-member church. I was the number two preacher. I was the guy. They're like, oh, this guy's on you know. And I would spend like 40 hours on my sermons. Anybody, Greg, you remember those days? Or Greg, Greg was preaching at crossings to way more than that, six, 7,000 people. It's just like, man, you were like, I got to nail this. I got to hit a home run. I'm researching. I'm up at night. I'm in the sanctuary at 5 a.m. Sunday morning, and I would preach my sermons seven times from the stage all alone in the sanctuary just so that I could just get it right and I could there's a performance thing in me Saturday night I'd spend all Saturday night working editing doing this stuff you know what I did last night I played kickball with my children in the yard that's what I did so because I just I just I don't want you to think I'm awesome so the goal of this church I just want you to hear this is that we would create an environment where you would come face to face with God and in that environment where you would come face to face with your own life and you'd have space for you two to work it out. That's it. That's my goal. Every Sunday is that my words, my sermon, these things would just help you come face to face with God and face to face with yourself and you'd have a chance to work it out together. And if, and if we can pray for you in that place, that's great, but, but you don't really need me. You just need to come face to face with him and face to face with yourself and be honest and say, God, I need your help. And guess what? He can do all things just one to one. So with that, I, I just wanted to, to clarify that. So you kiss the heart and vision and it's not because we're smart or better or we've discovered some of the little thing. It's just we're like, God, this is what we're called to do. And, and I, I hope you've experienced some of the goodness of that. And I say that because this sermon today is just one of those sermons that it's not a sermon. Um, it, it's, it's a message from my heart and really it's like a personal testimony. So Paul is inviting Timothy into suffering. Paul's like, guess what? If you want to follow me, you want to be my disciple, you've got to prepare yourself for hardship, for difficulty, for disappointment, for confusion, for doubt, or in other words, you've got to prepare to suffer. And it's this kind of suffering that Paul tells Timothy about of how I go into the world and I suffer, but God is at my, my side and he's given me strength and he's rescuing me. It's this kind of suffering, suffering that gives witness to the world. And so um, this morning, I, I don't want to pretend that um, we're any different than Paul. That our lives will look any different than the people of the scriptures or the people across history. That, that we all will enter into suffering at some point. 
It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And, and, and there's another question of how severe. I get it that some of us get a more severe case of suffering than others, but there's not a single person who walks around in flesh and blood who doesn't at some point in their life suffer. It's impossible to escape. And when you do, it, it brings everything that you thought, and everything you said, and all the, the dreams and all your beliefs about God, it like slams them into a wall. And you mostly just go like, oh, all that stuff I used to believe about who God was and who I am and what all this stuff looks like, it just got shattered. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, which is maybe the most incredible book ever written uh, on pain. This treatise, intellectual, theological, philosophical, and then his wife got cancer. And he wrote another book under a pen name. He wrote it under a pen name because he thought if he wrote this book under his name, people would turn from the faith because it's so raw and it's so painful. And it's a book called A Grief Observed. There's C.S. Lewis before pain, and there's C.S. Lewis after pain. And we want to make sure that we can take those two things, and I think he did. But what did he say in, the, in, in A Grief Observe? He said, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him then in praise, you will be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. Whew. C.S. Lewis is describing what happens when you're suffering. Paul is inviting Timothy. He said, guess what? You're going to feel in your suffering like the door has slammed in your face and it's been bolted and double bolted and you might as well walk away. But listen to me. There's another way. God's not done with you yet. He's not done with your life. He's not done with his kingdom. He's not done with the mission. There's more coming. Helmut Thielek, who is a, uh, a German theologian, they asked him what he thought about American Christians, and he said American Christians have an inadequate view of suffering. Whew. Man, one of the greatest features, I think, or, or sorry, not features, one of the greatest failures of the church of the last 20 to 30 years has been its failure to give people a theology of suffering. To understand what it means to suffer and how we do it well. And how our suffering actually becomes our greatest witness and testimony to the power of God in the world. Right? Yes, yes. That is who we are yes, yes. as Christians. C.S. Lewis went on to say, you never know much about, uh, you never know much, uh, how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. You never really know how much you believe anything until the believing of that thing becomes life or death. So this morning, I, I, I want to give you my view on suffering and what it looks like and how do you live in the midst of it? How do you live faithfully when everything has gone wrong? How do you live faithfully in the midst of confusion and doubt and pain and grief and trauma and loss amongst death and disease and divorce and addiction and abuse? How do you keep your faith, like Paul says? Fight the good fight. Hold on so that you might gain the prize. How do you do that? And I feel like I've spoken of this more lately, and it feels like just kind of what God is doing in our midst. It's what he's doing in me, which is he's preparing us 
for a time when we're going to be invited to display the gospel of the kingdom through our lives, through how we deal with these difficult things. Um, and so I want you to know this morning that like, the things I speak of, I've gained in the midst of life and death struggle through pain and grief and suffering, death and trauma. You guys know that I lost my first wife uh, 15 years ago in a car accident. And so I'm just going to go through some things that I know. These are things I know. Um, they're not things I've read about. There's not things I've heard about. These are things that I, I know in the deepest sense. I know what it feels like to be covered in the blood of someone you made a covenant to protect. I know what it feels like to be absolutely abandoned and alone. I know what it feels like to sing, he gives and takes away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name at your wife's funeral. I know what it's like to have survivor's guilt, where I would dream that Samantha was still alive and it was so real, I wouldn't realize until I was in the shower and fully awake that she was dead. I'd have dreams that she didn't love me anymore, that she had divorced me and left and I couldn't be with her and I would wake up and I'd be sobbing in the shower when I would realize that wasn't real. I, I actually, she had died. I know what it's like to have panic attacks when I first got behind the wheel of my truck again. I know what it's like this many years later, 15 years later, that if I hear a loud boom or the screeching of tires or a person scream or the smell of burning rubber and smoke, to have a visceral reaction in my body. 15 years later, that hasn't stopped. I know what it's like to fall asleep weeping and wake up weeping. Have you ever woke up, woken up weeping? Just, I mean, like, absolutely, some of you have. You know what that's like. I know what it's like to want to die. I know what it's like to not know how to put the shattered piece of my life back together or even know if I want them to be put back together. I know what it's like to live with and suffer from post-traumatic stress. And these things aren't to make you feel sorry for me. They're to know that everything I'm speaking of today isn't cheap wisdom or cliches. This isn't to throw the Bible in your face and to tell you you need to do better. It is to say there is a way through. There's a way through. There's not a way out. I'm sorry. I wish there was a way out. But there is a way through. And the way through has so much meaning and purpose and hope and joy and love for you. But you have to go through. So the question today isn't will we suffer? It's what will we do in our suffering? How will we respond? Because what our enemy wants us to do is, is to get destroyed. He wants us to never regain what's been stolen. He wants us to die spiritually, emotionally, Physically, That's his goal. And we live in the most despairing generation ever. Deaths of despair have become the number one cause of death in the United States of America. Drug overdose, suicide, deaths of despair. Why? Because we don't know what to do with our suffering. And I just think, too, it's like, God, how have we gotten so far away as Christians that we don't know what to do with suffering when it's through the whole Bible? So I'm going to give you some super practical biblical wisdom, okay? So if you've got notes app or you've got a journal, write these down, okay? Because I promise you, you will come to a point where these things will be life or death for you. 
Like you will have something happen in your life. You will get into a situation financially, spiritually, emotionally, in some way with, you know, with your family where you will be like, God, I don't know what to do. And you might remember these things. And it will not just save your life. It will allow you to have vision and hope for a future. So what do we do when we suffer? The first thing we do is wait. <laughs> we wait. What do Christians do when suffering hits, when pain hits, when loss hits? We wait. James says this, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The first thing you do when the worst thing happens in your life is, is really you do nothing. You just, just stand still and just try to get your bearings on where is God? Where am I? What's happening? Because when we rush off to fix our problems and our pain, we usually worsen them. We usually make things work uh, worse when we're in a hurry to fix things. We're hurry to get out of pain. And then the problem is the pain never teaches us the thing it was actually uh, able to teach us if we'd wait, if we'd stay still. So wait. You too, be patient and stand firm. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we considered blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The first thing you need to do when you start into a season of suffering, even if it's slow or if you're thrust into it, is just to stand still for a moment and just say... I'm not, okay, I'm not going to do anything right now. I'm just going to stand before the Lord, stand firm, and I'm going to wait. I'm going to be patient in suffering. I'm not going to try to fix it all at once. Uh, Annie's dad gave us great advice one time. He said, never make a big decision when you're in a moment of transition in life. <laughs> Saved us so much pain. He's like, when you get married, if you change jobs, if you just had a child, if something bad's happened, never make any big decisions. Because you just got to wait for things to settle before you do anything. Just be patient. What do we do when we suffer? The first thing we do is we wait on God because what we also trust. What do you do? You trust. Romans 8, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called, called according to his purpose. Because I know that, I can trust God in the waiting. So waiting isn't just always just doing nothing. It starts to become an active kind of waiting where I'm actively trusting God with what he's doing in the midst of my pain. Not that he has caused my pain, but that he's doing something in the midst of my pain. God, I trust you with this thing that I don't understand, that doesn't make any sense, that makes every fiber of my being want to question your goodness and your love, your actual, like, whether you're even, you even exist. I'm having all this stuff happen in my mind, and yet in the midst of that, I choose, this is the thing, I choose to trust you. Jesus looks at the disciples and he goes, are you two going to abandon me? And they go, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the son of God. We know this. So we're going to stick with you. Even if you make weird statements about drinking your blood and eating your body and you're doing all this crazy stuff, we don't understand it. And yet we know the person and we're like, we can't, can't give it up. 
I'm staying. I trust you. Even when I don't see, I'm literally, you're like, I can't see anything past the end of my face. I have no idea where this is going. I have no idea how God's going to bring good out of this. And yet, I trust you. And it's because I know what the abandonment, God, of your person and purpose does in the lives of humans. I've seen it. When people get thrust into suffering and they abandon God, does their life get better? Do things improve? Do they have peace in life and hope and joy? No, no, no. I, I know, God, what happens, and so I'm clinging to you. John Orberg said at one time, sometimes faith is just holding on. And I had this picture of the guy who's got like one hand, finger on the cliff. <laughs> and he's like, that's faith. God, I am holding on to you. This is all I've got. That's it. What do you do when you suffer? You wait and you trust. What's the next thing you do? And I'm going to tell you, this is going to be hard to swallow. But what do you do when you're suffering? You obey. You obey. I had this thought. I'm in the middle of this painful experience. I don't know what to do. I don't want to know what my future looks like. I feel like I've lost everything. And I just had this thing where it just felt like I'm going to obey everything I know to be true. I just felt like I had to obey my way out of the darkness. Just like, who is God? What does he say? I'm going to do my best to obey him. I'm not going to be faithless in this time. God's been so faithful to me in my whole life. I have all these other stories of him being faithful to people in loss and suffering. I'm going to obey During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Jesus prayed and petitioned God for another way while he was in flesh. He was just like us. He did what you would have done if you were facing the cross. He said, God, get me out of this if there's any other way. And God just said, there's not another way. This is the way. And he said, Okay. And he humbled himself and became in the nature of a servant, even to death on a cross. And he obeyed through death. And then what did he get? He got exalted. So it's the through that you've got to say, God, I'm going to obey you in so that I can get through, (laughs) so that someday I can be out. Like, I don't want to live here in this suffering place, and I don't want to make the kind of mistakes that causes me to wander in the wilderness of suffering like the Israelites, who what could have been a 40-day journey turned into a 40-year journey. We all have stories of people in our lives who are like, it's so gut-wrenching to watch somebody wander in suffering because they're not willing to obey God. They're not willing to learn the lesson. They're not willing to open their ears and say, God, what would you say about this? I choose your way. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Who is Jesus' salvation for? For those who obey him. There is salvation for you in the midst of your suffering, which means there's deliverance. I'm not talking about like salvation of your soul. I think there's salvation in the midst of your human actions for you. There's a way out. There is a rescue For all those who look at him and say, I want to obey. Holy Spirit, help me obey.
Help me do the things I need to do that don't make any sense. John Owen said this, One special kind of obedience is intended here, namely a submission to great, hard, and terrible things, accompanied by patience and quiet endurance and faith for deliverance from them. The Christ, this Christ could not have the experience of, except by suffering, the things he had to pass through, of exercising God's grace in them all. And so my... Um, Advice When people go through what I've gone through, I, I give them this advice. I said, here's what I did, which I think saved my life. I'm, I took every hard thing I knew I was going to have to do, and I did them right away. I was like, God, what are the hardest things I'm going to have to do? I'm going to do them right away. Because I, I, I was like living by the Shawshank Redemption. Get busy living or get busy dying. So God, if I'm going to live, what I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to drive my truck again. And I got behind the wheel and I drove and I had a panic attack and I veered off the side and I sat on the side shaking like a leaf and weeping until I gathered myself again to turn it on and to pull back onto the freeway and drive home. And then you know what happened? Two days later, Greg Dewey says, do you want to go to lunch? He doesn't know that this happened. Where is he at? He's back there. And I was like, I wanted to say no, unless you want to come to my house for lunch. And I was just like, yeah, I want to go to lunch. Tell me where and I'll meet you there. And you know what I did the next day? I got back in my truck and I drove. And I did that over and over and over again until I could drive without having panic attacks. You know what I did? I went to church the first week I came back to Oklahoma City. I was like, God, I love you. I've got to live in your presence. I'm going to go to church. You know what I did in church? I wept. Like, a, like, in my mind, like an idiot, like a moron, like an embarrassment, I just wept. At one point, I had to go to the bathroom, and I closed the stall, and I collapsed in the corner, and I just sobbed in the corner by myself. So I was like, God, I can't do this. You know what I did the next Sunday when church came around? I got dressed, I got in my truck, and I drove there, and I said, God, I will be found in the place where you've asked me to be. I'm going to obey What are the things that God's given you to obey? How do you have a vision for your life to say, I'm going to do the things that I know are right because I want to place my life in the position where God can bless me. You know what I did when I got my first check from an insurance company for the settlement? I walked into the office and I tithed on it. Do you think I could have made a a way out of my mind to say, should I really tithe off of the the death of my wife? Should I give this money? I I don't have any money. I don't have a job. My house is in foreclosure. I've got nothing. And I just said, God, this is what you've done in my life. This is who you've taught me to be. I'm going to keep going on the path you've had me on. Not veering from the right to the left. You know what I did? I didn't tithe. I gave 20%. So like, God... I need your blessing to survive this. And if this is what it takes, I will go above and beyond. Because <laughs> I am desperate. We obey. What do you do next? In the midst of that obedience, you endure. There is a point where you are surviving. You are enduring the trial you're in. You're not thriving. You're not like this glowing uh, <laughs> testimony to the grace and goodness of God, you are just like, I am in the middle of the marathon and the worst, I don't know, what's the worst mile of the marathon? Is it probably 13? It's probably halfway through. You look at those people, you're like, they're never finishing. They're never finished. They look terrible. You know, they're just like red. You're just like sweating. They're throwing up. Like that's when you're just like, God, the Lord himself, Deuteronomy says, goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Keep going. Most of life is about not quitting. 
I mean, almost everything good that you know, anybody in your life who has something good, whether it's in business or in parenting or in marriage or with their children or their friends or spiritually, it's almost all due to they never gave up. They did not stop going to church. They did not stop giving their tithe. They did not stop reading their Bible. They did not stop worshiping and walking and praying and loving and surrendering and repenting and confess. They just never gave up. It's amazing how much comes to your life if you just keep going foot in front of foot in front of foot in front of foot. Second Corinthians, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If you want to endure the trials and sufferings you're in, you have to look past this life into the next. Because you're going to run into some things that this life isn't worth paying the price for. You're going to feel like, I'm just going to give up and let go. But guess what? In the next life, there are things that are unseen that are worth paying the price to stay in the game with Jesus and keep going. Paul can say, I got taken up into the third heaven. I saw what's happening after this life, and I can tell you, it is worth every single loss in this life. So now I consider every gain in this life lost so that I might be found in him. I might gain this eternal life. So we endure. And I just want to tell you, you cultivating the, the, the grit, spiritual, mental, emotional grit to stay in the game with Jesus. To just keep going. And the beautiful thing is, is this isn't just all on you. Some of it's like you, you got to decide. But the Holy Spirit lives in you. He's like, I'm your helper. Ask me for help. Wake up in the morning. Do what Billy Patterson who's here this morning. Roll out of bed onto your knees and say, Holy Spirit, help me. I cannot do this day, much less next week or the week after or the year or look at, at 40 more years of this. I, I need your help. I need your help. So we um, wait and we trust and we obey and we endure. And then what do we do? We rejoice. This is the craziest thing. Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. If you'll allow it, suffering will create the most beautiful things in your life. Things that could not be created any other way. And it doesn't mean that, that you're thankful for the suffering, but you're thankful for what the suffering produces. You're thankful in the midst of your suffering. James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So many of us interrupt the work of perseverance. We take detours off of the path that God has given us to endure, and then it never works itself out and completes itself. And where do we find ourselves in the detour? We find ourselves bitter and resentful. We find ourselves wounded and victimized. And in those places, there's no joy. There's no hope. There's no future. There's no vision the only way to do it is to go back to the path. Jeremiah 6.6, 6, I love that. I, I search for the ancient paths. I stand at the crossroads and look. 
It's like, God, give me the ancient ways. Give me the ancient wisdom. Give me the Bible so that I can know what to do because I, do, I wouldn't do it this way if I didn't have your word. Because it, it doesn't seem like it would ever work. Like, what do you mean love your enemies? What do you mean make peace? What do you mean turn the other cheek? What do you mean go the extra mile? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, you do it when you're like, I want the work to be complete. When I was in the midst of that suffering, my goal was, God, I want you to restore and heal my life in a way that I could be in the world and no one would ever know that this happened to me. That's what I want. I want it to be the most surprising thing to people after they've met me for months and maybe even years to find out what I've been through. Because that's the kind of God you are and that's what you offer to people is the kind of healing that would shock people. The kind of redemption that only comes from him. And then the last thing, what do we do? We pray. <laughs> we pray. Is any one of you in trouble? What does James say? You should pray. What <laughs> are the shortest sentences in the Bible? What do you do when you're in trouble? You pray. And you pray with your guts. You don't pray nice prayers. You're like, God, I need you. I am in the wilderness. I need your help. You, pr you pray uh, like Hannah did in the Old Testament where they thought she was drunk. That's how you pray. They're like, hey, chill out. What's happening? She's like, no, no, no. I'm praying with groans and with desperation. Because I need God's action in my life. I love this, though. It's like, are you in trouble? Pray. Are you happy? Praise. Are you sick? Pray. <laughs> pray, praise, and pray. Like, those, those, these are what Christians do to get through every single thing we have in this life. We pray, and we praise, and we pray, and we praise, and we pray. That's why we do this so much as a church. Because the Bible says, this is what you do. The church, you create an atmosphere where people can come and meet God face to face and they can pray and they can praise and they can pray and they can be prayed for. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, right? Character, character, uh, uh, perseverance, character, and character, hope in this place, right? This is where hope arises is in the place of prayer. When you pray, and especially when you pray the Bible in the place of community, hope starts to kindle in your heart. You start to get a different vision. You start to read about the saints in history and what happened and what God did in their life. And you say, I'm not alone in this. I'm not the first in this. There is a way out. There's a hope and a future for me. And when you do this, Paul says in Philippians that, say, uh, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So it is like I would come to church and I would take hold firmly of God's, like his word of life and be like, I am not letting go till you bless me. Till you restore me, till you redeem me, till you give me hope, till you give me vision, till you give me a future. And I'm just going to keep going, believing all these things are coming because you promised it. And if I'm one of those people in Hebrews 11 who didn't get what was promised, I know ultimately I will live in the land of promise with you forever, God. I'm either getting it in this life or I'm getting it in the next life, but it's guaranteed. I'm going to get what you promised me. I'm going to invite the band to back up. We're going to wrap up. Jesus says this, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Listen to that. In him you have peace. In the world you have trouble. But you can be in him in the world. So in the world of trouble, you can actually have peace if you are in him. 
you're in him, here's what I think. I think the generation that we are in um, are not going to be won by happy, clappy Christians. By Christians who ignore their pain, by Christians who act like everything's okay, Christians who use the scripture as cliche. I think it's going to be won by Christians who suffer and yet have hope and joy and peace. Because where else do you find that in this world? I haven't seen it. One of the early church fathers said this, Beloved brethren, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom, not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. I think that's the kind of church that could win a generation who doesn't just speak of great things, but actually lives them out. We bear in our bodies. Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. So we have a choice in this life when we get crushed, what fragrance gets released into the world. And if I had more time, I would have brought little bowls of fragrance and I would have crushed them through the rows. So can you just imagine you've been somewhere where something gets crushed, you're cooking, and all of a sudden that fragrance fills the room. And what does that do to you? It does something in you more than just the sense of smell. It's nostalgia and it's longing and it's desire. And you're just like... That's what it feels like to be around a Christian who is suffering and yet praising God, suffering yet obeying, suffering yet enduring. That aroma goes into them and they go, I didn't know. I didn't know you could be this way. I didn't know you could lose a child and still bless the name of God. I didn't know you could walk through cancer and trust him with your life and your death. I didn't know you could be abused and recover. I didn't know. Nobody ever told me. I never had that aroma in my life before. And that aroma isn't like an assault. It's an invitation. So much of our our witness, it feels like we're coming against people rather than just overtaking them, like in this pure and lovely sense. And so there's this invitation today in our homes and in our workplace and in the coffee shop you attend and in the halls of the Capitol to be the aroma of God in Christ. As you say, listen, I am broken and I am being broken and I am crushed and yet the God of this universe loves me and he sees me. I'm like Hagar in the desert. I see the God who sees me. I know what it's like to go through all those things I've spoke of before and to still be here giving witness to the light and love of God but I also know what it's like to have thousands of people praying for me by name I know what it's like to have my dad deliver the worst possible news on my behalf I know what it's like to have my family stop their lives for weeks to fly across the country to be with me I know what it's like to have my friends fly across the country to attend a funeral and to offer me a place to land in my suffering. 
I know what it's like to have a person in this church pay my bills for a year so that I could heal. I know what it's like to have family go pack up a storage unit full of samanthonized things, drive it from Washington to Oklahoma so that I wouldn't have to do it. I know what it's like to find a church that allowed me to be a broken and mourning man in their midst and to love me and my story. I know what it's like to have mentors who gave me an opportunity to allow God to redeem my pain and turn it into ministry. I know what it's like to rebuild my life in the middle of the church. I know what it's like to meet my wife here who's been healing and restorative and gracious to me. I know what it's like to raise my children in a church where my life is so deeply rooted around people that I respect and love and admire. I know what it's like to say everything in my life now is grace on grace on grace on grace. And friends, these are not special graces to me. These are the invitation of a loving God to those who are willing to wait and trust and obey and endure and rejoice and to pray. So I want you to stand to your feet. I want you to close your eyes. And I just want to say this morning, if you are in the place, you're like, I have been crushed or I am being crushed. I have lost or I I feel lost this morning. The God of the universe in his son, Jesus Christ on the cross is giving you an invitation to bring it to him and to bring beauty from ashes in your story, to give you the oil of gladness instead of a garment of despair. He's like, I want to exchange for you right now and I want to lead you on the path of restoration. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up. I'm going to open the altars. And so you might just want to come stand at the front with your story, like bringing like, God, this is my life. This is the crushing I've had. I just want to come stand before you. I want to offer it up. And I tell you what, God loves the sacrifice of a broken heart. The Bible says he will not despise that and he will not reject it. If you bring him the crushing of your life, He sees that as the sweetest, most precious, most holy sacrifice. You might just want to bring it before him. You might want prayer this morning just to say, God, I need your help. I need need the words of another human because I can't even verbalize the prayer. I don't know what to pray, but I know the Holy Spirit wants me to pray. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm just just going to open our time. We're just going to worship for a little bit. And this song, I love this song. In the pressing, in the crushing, God, bring new wine out of me. Bring newness of life, God, in these moments. God, I thank you that in our pain and in our loss and in our grief, that you don't abandon us. Even in the feelings of abandonment, God, that isn't true. You say you will be with us and you will go ahead of us. I've seen that and I believe it. And I pray it over this congregation this morning, God. I pray in every situation, in every scenario where things aren't the way they should be, that you would grant us the courage and the energy to wait on you, to trust you, God, to endure, Father. And then even, God, to rejoice in the midst that the prayers in this place for anyone who is in trouble that they would be answered because we pray in the name of Jesus who has all power and authority 
in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And we just glorify you this morning, Jesus. I pray that we would learn how to live faithfully in these days in the midst of trials and suffering because we know that you're with us. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. We pray in your name.